James chapter 1. Precious Almighty God, we praise you and we thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Your word, Lord, is true. As the psalmist says, the sum of your words is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Lord, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see our lives and everything that happens to us, and specifically trials this morning, the way you see them, the way your word shows them to us. We pray that you will give us understanding and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. James 1. As I said, we'll be looking at James. I'm starting a series on James whenever I am up here to preach. Uh, We've gone through parables uh, for a while. Uh, And I thought we would um, go through the book of James as um, another portion of Scripture. But James chapter 1, I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through to verse 12, uh, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8 today. James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And so as we look at James and the book of James, the main message of James and the main reason that James wrote this letter to believers in the early church, is so that they would know the difference between true and false religion. So that they would know as they live their Christian lives how they're to live godly lives, how they're to persevere in the midst of trials and how to live wisely and for God's glory. And so as we'll be looking at the passage this morning... The first thing that James wants them to know is how to live wisely and well in the midst of trials. Now, who is James? Well, there are two main candidates for the writer of this letter or this epistle. And the first one is the Apostle James. James, the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee. And the other is the half-brother of Jesus. And both were popular at that time and authoritative enough in in the early church. But the Apostle James passed away relatively early on in the early church. And so the James that is most likely to have written this epistle is the half-brother of Jesus. And the language in this epistle of James is very similar to the letter given by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, of which James was one of the writers of that letter. But who is James, the half-brother of Jesus? Well, James initially was 
unconverted. Like the rest of Jesus' brothers, he didn't believe in Jesus. But then later on, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, he was visited by Jesus when Jesus rose from the dead, and presumably this was when he was converted. And then he becomes, the Bible calls him, a pillar in the church. And he was one of the leaders in the Jerusalem church, and he presided over the important Jerusalem council. And yet even though he had all these things going for him, he was a pillar in the church, he was a leader of the Jerusalem church, he presided over the council, he was the brother to Jesus. How does James describe himself? Have a look with me, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word could be there, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Other people might be tempted to capitalise on their greatness or their position, authority, but not so James. He uses his title here, slave or servant, as a humble title. Like the Apostle Paul, like Peter, he knew that he was a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a sibling, would you ever call yourself a slave of your sibling? And not a slave in the begrudging kind of way. No, a willing slave or servant of your sibling. And yet this is what James does here. Because his sibling, his brother, is not the normal kind of brother. He puts his brother on the same level as the father, God the father. Because he's a slave of both. Of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ And yet, while slave is a title of humility, it's also a title of honour. Because there's no greater position to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. There's no greater service to be in than that of Christ. And so here we have James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see here the importance of James's designation of himself, of the importance of making sure that you're part of Christ's family. Not a, not a physical family, but his spiritual family. Because you could be the physical brother of Christ and yet be unconverted. But if you're here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're part of, part of Christ's family. You're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus answered the question, who is my family? He says, Matthew twelve fifty. he says, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven... He is my brother and sister and mother. And so as we look at this passage this morning, the main message that James wants us to understand is that true faith perseveres in trials. True faith perseveres in trials. Because we will have trials and troubles, but it's how we respond to those trials and troubles that shows our faith. And so if we break up our passage into different points, the first point from verse 1 to 4, is that we are to count it joy. The second point in verses 5 to 8 is ask for wisdom. And those are the two points we'll be looking at today. The next two points are are to boast in humiliation, from verse 9 to 11, and see the reward, verse 12. But we'll be looking at the, the first two points today. First, count it joy. Have a look with me again at verses 1 through to verse 4. Second part of verse 1. To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now these are the recipients of James's letter. 
Who were these people, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations? Who are the 12 tribes? Now, while it is true that that Jews and Gentiles are called the circumcision, they are the ones who are the true Jews or the offspring of Abraham. And that is true. The usual term 12 tribes is used to designate designate the ethnic uh, 12 tribes of Israel. And so while James writes to every believer in the early church, there is a specific emphasis that he has in one sense to the 12 tribes, the ethnic tribes of, of Israel, to Jewish Christians. Because the Jews themselves had been dispersed. And if you have a look there, it says scattered among the nations or literally who are in the dispersion. And one of the things that we see in the prophets of the Old Testament is that God, in the whole of the Old Testament, is that God promised that he would, because of their sin, he would scatter them among the nations. But there would be a time when he would gather them back. He would gather them back. And so the Jews knew that they were the ones who were in this dispersion, whether it's from Assyria with the northern kingdom, whether it was Babylon with the southern kingdom, whether it's in the times of, of, of Rome that were in, uh, in the early church here, whether they're scattered around all of the Mediterranean, or recently in, in Acts 8, the Jerusalem church had been scattered because of persecution. James writes to believers, and in some respects, Jewish believers, because the Jews were hated everywhere they went. And particularly Jewish Christians. Because Jewish Christians, not only were they hated for being Jewish, but they were hated even by their own nation because they were Christians as well. They needed to hear this. And so do we this morning. Have a look with me. Verse 2. Viewing trials well. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That word there, consider, means to regard something as or have a certain view about something. And the thing that they're to consider is their trials. And what are they to consider them as? Pure joy. How do you see trials? A burden? A time where God is distant from you? Or you are distant from God, as the case more often is. An opportunity to complain. Or a time of great sadness. And some of these are legitimate things. Others are not. But would you see your trials as this? Pure joy? As we look at our passage, James wants us to consider our trials the same way that God does. The same way that scripture does. Pure joy. Or literally all joy. What is joy? Joy is a deep delight or a gladness. And often it's associated with the word happiness as as I was talking about in in the children's talk. But happiness. Happiness is a word that often... It indicates a feeling that comes and goes so quickly. It's there one second and goes the next. It's up when things are going up and it's down when things are going down. 
But biblical joy is different. It's not a, it's not a, a feeling that somehow eradicates all sadness. No. But it's there in the midst of sadness or sorrow. Joy. All joy. As a Christian, it is a deep-rooted gladness, a settled contentment in God through Christ. The scripture, how does the scripture view trials? Joy, a time of contentment, despite what's going on. How does the world view suffering? As an opportunity to grumble, where all your peace is gone. So, all joy. Well, when are we to have all joy? Have a look with me. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, trials of many or various kinds, all kinds of trials, whenever, whenever, not just sometimes, not just the trials that you want to feel good about, all those trials which are maybe a little bit bad, but those deep trials, you can, you know, you can forget God in the midst of those. No, whenever you face trials of various kinds, all of them, whether it's specific persecution, whether it's cares and worries of this life, worrying about putting food on the table, maybe it's a besetting sin that you just, it's so hard for you to shake. Or a thorn, someone who's a thorn in the flesh. Or that child, if you're a parent, that child that just will not listen. Or that friend or family member who just annoys you so much. They get on your nerves. Either you see them all the time or those family dinners that you can't escape. Whatever it is. Trials of many kinds. Whatever it is. Chronic illness, pain that just doesn't stop. We need to view them, as Scripture does, as joy. Now, God doesn't just tell us, consider them joy. He gives us reasons why we're to consider them joy. Have a look with me. Verse 3. Verse 3. And we're going to see here. The reasons for that joy. And the first of which is that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. When we have trials, I want you to imagine uh, uh, like a flow chart, if you like. We're starting over. We'll start over here for you. We've got trials. And then when we have trials as believers, there's the testing of our faith. And when we have the testing of our faith, it develops perseverance of our faith. And when that perseverance of our faith is developed, we have joy. And when there's a disconnect between the trial and then the testing of our faith, when there's a disconnect between the perseverance of the faith and the testing of our faith, that's when things start to go wrong. Because we're all going to have our faith tested. But it's whether or not our faith perseveres. That's the key. True faith always casts itself on God into full dependence. In full dependence. 
Now, if someone professes faith, but this outward faith fizzles out, it shows that it was a fake from the very beginning. If someone outwardly professes faith, but this faith fizzles out and never comes back, it shows that it was never a true faith. Matthew 10, verses 21 to 22. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. This is Jesus speaking. And children will rise up against parents and and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. What does he say next? But it is the one who endured to the end who will be saved. It's the one who endures to the end that will be saved. That is the final test of true faith. Because you can have fruit. Your fruit can kind of look good on the outside. But if that, if that fruit does not endure, it was never true to begin with. True fruit endures to the end. That is the final test of genuine faith. It is fruit that endures, fruit that perseveres. Do you remember the parable of the four soils? This is one of the most important parables. In Luke 8, we, in, in, the, in the different Gospels, we have different nuances brought out about this parable. And Luke 8 has the clearest uh, in relation to our passage. Luke 8, verses 11 to 15. The seed is the word of God. And those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation fall away the seed which fell among the thorns these are the ones who have heard and as they go on their way they're choked with worries and riches and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity but the seed in the good soil these are the ones who have the word who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast And bear fruit with perseverance. That word perseverance there is the same word in our passage in James 1. Perseverance. Did you hear those those facets, those truths about temporary faith? It has no root. It has no root. It only believes for a while and it brings no fruit to maturity. Brings no fruit to maturity. It's like fruit that comes up and it starts growing and it, it looks good and you go, Great, that's amazing. I'm getting fruit on my fruit tree. But instead of growing and keeping on growing, it withers and dies. What about true faith? Well, it says it comes from an honest and good heart. It holds fast the word and it bears fruit with perseverance. It bears fruit with perseverance. Trials, discourage, worries and pleasures of the world distract, but true faith perseveres. Believer, if you are suffering right now, keep going. Keep going. There's a call here for you to persevere. There's a call here for you to just keep on striving, keep on coming back to God as we will look. 
to count your trials as joy. How do you count your trials? How do you regard them? As joy? Or as a burden? True faith perseveres. But in that perseverance, have a look with me. Verse 4, perseverance results in maturity. This is the other reason for joy. Perseverance results in maturity. Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. As we persevere, we are continually sanctified so that we may be mature. And that word mature there means to make perfect. We won't be perfect in this life. We'll be perfect in the next life when we are fully glorified. But that's the point of perseverance is so that we will be continually sanctified, so that we will be matured until the day we are perfected in Christ Jesus. That other word there, complete, is, means entire. There's a full-orbed sanctification. We are sanctified through and through, body and soul, completely and entirely in Christ. And so why do we rejoice? Not just that our, when we are tested, our faith perseveres by God's grace, but that we are grown and matured. That is what the testing of our faith does. It, pers- it helps us to persevere and we are grown in our faith. We are sanctified and then we rejoice at the work that God does in us. We rejoice at the work God has started in us. We rejoice at the work God is doing in us and we rejoice one day that it will be perfect and complete and entire. We rejoice in our trials because of what God is doing in us, of what God is doing in our hearts. Do your trials drive you to God? Do your trials drive you to Him? Even as as the psalm was read out at the beginning of God, it says, who is our exceeding joy. Do trials drive you to God or they drive you away from God? Do they drive you to the God who is our exceeding joy? And as you see that God who is our joy working something marvelous in us, something that makes us marvel, God's sheer grace, does that make you full of joy? Because it should. Or do you drift from God when trials come? And trials will do that as you persevere as a Christian. Trials will do that sometimes. You will forget God. You will forget that God is there. And you will feel that God is distant. You will stop reading the Word of God. You will stop meditating on truths like these that we're looking at in our passage this morning. You won't go as often to the mercy seat of God. Do trials drive you away from God? Do they drive you to complain, to grump? It's not to say that we cannot be sad. Sorrow and sadness is proper and appropriate and good when we're in times of trouble. But that should always drive us to God. Is there joy in God and dependence on Him? And are your trials sanctifying you? 
Are your trials maturing you in your faith? Because if they're not, if you see that you're not trusting God, if you see that you're being driven away from God and that instead of being sanctified by your trials as a general pattern of your life, then you have reason to doubt your faith. If your fruit is withering and dying, then you have reason to doubt that your faith and your profession of faith is actually genuine. If that is you, and you're realizing here this morning that the faith that you have is not genuine, the faith that you have is fake, that is the kind of faith that God hates. It's a faith that masquerades as something good, and yet all it does is trample underfoot the blood of Christ, as the writer of Hebrews put it. It outrages the Spirit of God. Do not be content with a fake faith or a veneer that you put up, an outward profession of faith. Repent. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask him for a faith. Ask him for an honest and good heart. Ask him for a heart that's like the good soil. In the parable Jesus told of the four souls, ask him for a good heart that holds fast the word and bears fruit with perseverance. Ask him for that. Ask him for a true faith. A faith that is genuine. Whether you are an unbeliever here this morning, or whether you are a believer, I'm going to read some verses from Hebrews 12. Because Christ... You're welcome to turn there if you like. Because Christ is the ultimate example of one who endured in suffering. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore... Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and in, as, 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 as an aside, in the chapter before, the writer of Hebrews has just given us many examples of people with faith. Faith that wasn't perfect, but faith that still depended on God. That's the context. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have this right, great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, of faith, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. And that same word there, let us run with endurance or perseverance. Sorry, I'm going to, pardon me, I'm, re, I'm going to read from the NIV now. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him. Consider. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Jesus is the author and perfecter of the faith of every single believer. He's not just the author of the faith of every believer. He is the perfecter of that faith. He's the author and perfecter, the starter and the finisher. He starts it, he matures it, and he perfects it at the very final day. 
And he's the perfect example of it. He endured the cross, despising its shame. I dare you to find a greater example of suffering than that. You will not find one. Though you search everywhere. In this whole world, you will not find one. Except Christ. And yet he endured. He endured. Why? Because of the joy set before him. Because he knew that his suffering would result in something. For us, it's that we've been matured in our faith as we persevere. For him, that he would ransom and redeem a people for himself through his suffering. So he endured because of the joy set before him. And so must we. We are called to be like Christ and endure and persevere and to count it all joy. Have a look with you. We've counted it all joy. As James said, we're going to count it all joy. And next we're to ask for wisdom. Have a look with me. At verses 5 through to verse 8. Verses 5 through to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Knowing the truths above about trials, about perseverance, about maturing in our faith, about looking to Christ, we must have wisdom. We must have wisdom. I don't know about you, but every time I come across a trial, I need wisdom to view that trial rightly, as God's Word does. It's almost like James is saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's saying, we all do. He's gently reminding us that we all need to ask for wisdom because wisdom enables us to rightly look at our times of trial. Because when, we, when trials come upon us, we forget everything that we know. We forget it so easily, and so we need to ask for wisdom. Wisdom enables us to suffer as Christ did. Where do we get this wisdom? Where do we get this wisdom? Verse 5, from God. He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. God is the source of wisdom. Now, as Leslie read up for us before, from Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, I'll read this. It says, For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and discernment. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, a shield to those who walk in integrity. God gives wisdom. We don't conjure it up. We don't somehow make it up and, and try and work out what's best. God gives wisdom. It's from him. He's the source. And Proverbs 2 says he stores it up for his people. He stores it up for the upright. If you remember Joseph in Egypt, there were seven years of plenty and there were seven years of famine. Now, if Joseph didn't store up seed and grain, they all would have died and perished. And I want you to think and imagine this as an illustration that all those storehouses and all that grain from those times of plenty was there. It was sitting there to be used in times of famine. And if no one ever asked for it, if no one ever said that they needed it, 
It never would have been given to anyone. It would have just sat there. But even way more than that, God has wisdom, it says, stored up. And that's the same kind of imagery. It's stored up for us. But how often do we not have wisdom because we don't ask? James 4 verse 2, in chapter 4 of the same letter, James says, he rebukes him, he says, You do not have because you do not ask. Brethren, ask for it. Simple as that. Ask for it. Ask for wisdom. That's what James is saying. God is not stingy. That's what it says here. He says, gives generously to all. He's generous. Do you ever think God is stingy with wisdom? God's generous. And it says he, he gives without finding fault. God doesn't scold us in pettiness and withhold it from us. How often are we foolish? How often are we foolish? And yet God doesn't scold us and say, you know, have fun. All the best on your own. No, he's generous. He's a loving father. Without finding fault, he gives to us so graciously if we but ask him. We have to but ask and he gives it. Because we need wisdom to endure trials rightly. We need wisdom to submit to God in every trial. We need wisdom to remember to go to God and cast ourselves on him in dependence and to view trials in the right way as a faith-refining, perseverance-inducing situation or, or trouble that happens to us. Do you ever stop in the midst of your trouble and ask God for wisdom? Do you ask him to show you what he wants you to do? Or do you ask others? You go read a book or something and, you know, and the thought might come to you, how are you going to get through this? Or do you go straight to God? Straight to God. Sin makes us stupid, doesn't it? Makes us foolish. So in our trials, God's the last person we go to often. <laughs> Just ask God for wisdom. But as we'll see in the next verses, we've got to ask God in faith. Have a look with me, verses 6 through to verse 8. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If you are, and I just want to make a quick comment about doubts. If you are doubting yourself... That can be good. If you're doubting yourself, it can be good. For example, if you are bearing no fruit, as we've just talked about, it's a good thing that you're doubting the faith that you profess. Doubts can be good. Doubts can be good when you are unsure whether what you believe matches up with Scripture. You're not doubting Scripture, but you doubt whether what you believe is what Scripture teaches. That's a good doubt. Why? Because it drives you to search the Scriptures more. And a lack of fruit drives you to search your heart more and drives you, by God's grace, to repent and believe. But if you doubt God and his word, that is a sinful doubt. That is a sinful doubt. And that's the doubt in our passage. To be in two minds about God's clear revelation, to not want to believe it, or to ask, ask God for something while thinking that he's stingy, that's the doubt expressed in our passage. When it speaks about those doubts in the word of God, it speaks about them as 
unbelief, a lack of faith. And yet God is so gracious to us in the midst of our doubts. He is. But there's unbelief if we're not trusting and we're doubting God's word. Romans 4, verses 18 to 20. This is speaking of Abraham when he'd just been told that he would have children. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. It then goes to say, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's what it says. It says, No unbelief made him waver. That word waver there is the word doubt. It's to be in two minds about something. That's the same word, waver, as doubt in our passage in James 1. Or Matthew 21, verses 21 to 22. Jesus is telling them about the necessity of having faith and prayer, what James is telling us here in our passage. Jesus says, Matthew 21, And Jesus answered them and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Faith is necessary when we ask God and come to him in prayer. Faith is necessary. It's not to say it's a perfect faith. It's not to say that it's a faith that is full and complete and you, you, know, you don't have any troubles as it were. But true faith, no matter how weak, is a faith that resolutely casts itself on God in full dependence. However small or big the faith, it casts itself on God in full dependence. Doubting God is linked with a lack of faith and unbelief. That is what Jesus said. That's what James is saying. To receive... You must believe. To receive, you must believe. Verse 7. Why must we not doubt? Have a look with me again. Verse 7. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Because God has said that he can and will give you wisdom generously. So when you doubt God, you are doubting his generosity. And you think that God will, is not going to give you much. Or you're doubting his, his truthfulness because God's promised it. And if you doubt God, you're not trusting in what, that, what he said he will do. Or maybe you're doubting God's kindness and his goodness. Or his power to actually help you in the midst of your trial. Are you doubting God's power when you come to him and ask for things? And ask for wisdom? We are not to doubt. As, how is the doubter described? Two ways, verse 6 and verse 8. Verse 6, he's like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Have you ever seen those waves? A wave that's just here and then here, and the wave kind of smashes against each other, and then it smashes, and the wave's suddenly over here, and then it's here, and, and you can't even keep up with it. Tossed by the wind. Tossed by the wind. Or verse 8, double-minded unstable 
in all his ways. The view here is of someone who is always, I'm not saying sometimes, because as believers we will be, but always troubled, always impatient, always unstable, always thrown by every temptation that comes our way, always just completely gutted by every single trial, however small that comes our way. You're kind of blown here and there by every trial instead of being anchored in God. No, we're to have a settled faith. It doesn't have to be the strongest faith. A faith fixed on God. God doesn't move. God doesn't move. And a faith that lays hold of him will be fixed on him. Matthew Henry says this, A mind that has but one single and prevailing regard to its spiritual and eternal interest regarding the, the, the maturing and sanctifying of our faith and the persevering, perseverance of our faith. A mind that has but one single and ultimate regard to its spiritual and eternal interest and that keeps steady in its purposes for God will grow wise in afflictions, will continue to be fervent in its devotions and will overcome all trials. It's not you who overcomes trials. It's not your faith that miraculously somehow conjures up an overcoming power. No, it's God who enables your faith to overcome trials. So I encourage you this morning, seek God for wisdom, but do it without doubting. Do not doubt God's goodness. And if you have unbelief in your heart, repent of unbelief. Repent of any stinginess that you've seen on God, in God, or any, any viewing God as, as lacking in goodness or power to actually help you in everything. Are we not like the man in Mark 9 who believed, but he said, I believe, help my unbelief. This is what he cried out to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. Cry out to God for more faith. Cry out to God for more faith to ask him for more wisdom. I'll close with this. Be gracious to each other in your doubts. Every time his disciples doubted, Jesus may have rebuked them, but he did so always graciously. God is so compassionate to his people. He knows that we struggle with doubts so often. Jude 22 says that we are to have mercy on those who doubt. Believers, if you're doubting your salvation or you're trying to see if your fruit is true, talk to another believer. Encourage each other in your doubts and always match them up to the Word of God. Always come back to the Word of God. Always come back to God. If you're doubting God and you need someone else to pray for you, ask them. We're to have mercy on each other when we doubt. Encourage each other. Encourage each other through times of trials. Point each other to God, the source of all wisdom, to view trials rightly. Encourage each other. We would persevere in trials and that our faith would be matured. Encourage each other. It's not easy. But all the more as we see the day approaching, let us spur each other on to suffer things, suffer trials and suffering in a way that honours our glorious God. Let me pray. Almighty God, 
There are times where you bring trials of various kinds to us. But we pray, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom and give us more faith so that we would ask for more wisdom, Lord, that we would view trials rightly. Lord, we do pray that we would see every trial, everything, however small, however big, that we would see it, Lord, as something that should drive us closer to you, that should drive us to cast ourselves on you. Lord, please, please, Lord, uphold us in times of trials. Uphold us in times of suffering. Help us never to grow complacent in good times, Lord. But help us to always prepare so that when we face these times of suffering and trials, that we would suffer them rightly. Oh, Lord, you are, ex- you are our exceeding joy. That we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and we thank you that we're in him who fills us with such joy because he also is our exceeding joy. He is the one who suffered so much, so much on the cross, enduring it because of the joy set before him. We pray that we would always look to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And we thank you that through his suffering, we are yours. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, for those here who do not know you, who do not have true, genuine faith, Lord, we do pray that you would grant them faith. Give them eyes to see, Lord, the trials. Trials should awaken them to the seriousness of sin. Trials should awaken them to the need, Lord, to the one who can rescue them from every trial and ultimately from sin. We pray, precious Lord, that indeed you would grant them faith, leading to life. Oh, Lord, we commit all these things into your gracious, good, and generous hands. Amen.